and uh, good morning and welcome. Uh, so glad to have you all here with us and uh, thankful that so many of our women are away at the retreat. Kind of thankful, I should say that. Uh, I'll be more thankful when they get home. I was laughing when Stefan was doing announcements and they had the picture of the chainsaw from Montrose. We should do that like the weekend after uh, the women's retreat for those of you who have to stay home alone with the kids because that looked kind of nice, just breaking something, destroying something or uh, things of that nature. But truthfully, hopefully what it does is it gives you a great appreciation uh, for your wife. I know it does for me and uh, actually... So I had the kids in early this morning and I look on my whiteboard and Kara had drawn this picture. It says, I miss mom from Kara. Everyone's frowning, including the dog. And I was like, it can't be that bad, right? Um, but, I, you know, we're, we're thankful. We're thankful that our women can get away. Uh, that's a, a, an important time. It's a necessary time. And I'll be thrilled to go home and see my wife. Uh, so... But we're not here to talk about the women's retreat. We're here to open up God's word and to worship him and to come together and be in that. And Mark 7 is where we're going to be. And so if you have your Bible, get them open to Mark 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have some in the lobby. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Take that, use that, and put it to good use. And so here, coming to Mark 7, here a couple of things that just maybe by way of introduction... Uh, this week we'll finish Mark 7, and then next week we'll uh, move through a good part of Mark 8, and then we'll pause uh, there for about a month, and we'll step away from the book of Mark, and we'll go into the book of Jonah, and that's by design, just to step away from Mark, uh, keep it a little bit fresh when we come back to it, give us some time to get into the Old Testament. We'll come back to Mark, uh, middle of May, that'll take us towards uh, probably the end of August, we'll do a four-week series in the first few chapters in the book of Genesis, we'll do the book of Galatians, and then, shocking, uh, it'll be Christmas time, and uh, 2016 will be over, and if your year has felt anything like my year, that'll probably be sometime next week, or at least that's how it'll feel, as time just seems to be flying by. Uh, but that's where we're heading kind of in the next number of months, but Mark 7, 24 through 37 is where we're heading this morning. And uh, before we do anything, I want to read the text, and uh, then we'll pray, and we'll pray for another pastor and church in the area, and then walk through the text as we typically do. But starting in verse 24, here's what Mark tells us. And from there, he, speaking of Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, this is such a shocking statement, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him and take him aside from the crowd privately. And then Mark gives us some very specific details about this healing. He put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. 
And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Guessing that man probably had quite a bit that he wanted to say in that moment, don't you think? Verse 36, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. They apparently didn't get the memo, right? Look at what it says next. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray before we go any further and ask God to open our hearts and our minds to the truth of his word. Lord Jesus, as we come before you, God, we're thankful. We're so thankful that you give us your word. We're so thankful that you teach us and instruct us. God, we're thankful that we can come to you. God, we pray this morning as we look at this text, as we uh, examine what we think uh, you're wanting to uh, teach us and and instruct us with. Uh, God, we know that Uh, Your spirit longs to work within each of our lives. And God, I'm always amazed that we can read a single passage, a single text, and yet so many of us in this room with different issues, different places of life, different things that we're struggling with or excited about, and yet you're going to take that same passage and you're going to speak to each and every one of us. And so God, we pray by the power of your spirit that you do just that. And God, we pray that in this moment that our hearts and our minds would be uh, yielded and surrendered to you, that we would say, yes, Lord Jesus, come and have your way with me. Speak to me, encourage me, bless me, convict me, challenge me, whatever it is that I need this morning. God, we pray that you would come and do that within each of us. But then corporately as a church, that you would speak to us as as an entire entity as well, and that you would move us. God, not only for us, I pray for my good friend Spencer Brown and for Center City. God, I thank you for um, his ministry right in the middle of Albuquerque. And God, we pray for them as they meet this morning as Spencer's preaching right now that you would speak powerfully through him. God, that you would use them uh, for your glory, for your honor, and to do a great work uh, in and through the lives of other people there. So Jesus, uh, do your work there at Center City. Do your work here at Faith Church and in all your other Uh, churches uh, throughout the metro area and really, God, throughout the entirety of the world. But be with us now when we pray this in your name. Amen. Title of the message this morning is Persistent Faith. Persistent Faith. And uh, uh, one of the things I want to do before we get to verse 24 this morning, I think is appropriate, is to step back and, and to see the broader context of what was unfolding or what's unfolding in Mark 7. Now, last week, Pastor Stefan taught on the first 23 verses of, uh, of Mark and talked about uh, the issues of tradition and the religious leaders and, and some of the things that they had going on. And so I, I won't rehash everything, but just bear with me for a moment or two uh, because I think uh, while context is always important, sometimes it becomes highly instructive or, or, or really helps to frame the emphasis of what the author is intending to tell us. And so I don't want us to just look at verse 24 through 37 isolated from what preceded it because I think Mark is drawing a contrast between the characters in the first part of the chapter and who we're going to look at here in the second part of the chapter. So if you look at the first part of Mark 7, you have the religious leaders that come to Jesus. They're all bent out of shape because the disciples, look at verse 5, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat with defiled hands? Can you see the issue there? Hey, your guys didn't wash their hands, and, and notice they didn't appeal to the scriptures, right? They didn't appeal to God's word. Hey, well, Leviticus tells us, or Deuteronomy says, or in Numbers it teaches us, it's just, hey, we have this tradition, and they didn't hold to it. 
I mean, these are the guys who should have known better than anyone what God had called them to. And so then Jesus, I love Jesus' response here uh, for so many reasons. Uh, but probably one of my favorite parts is this. Look at what he says in verse 6. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? What's that next word? Hypocrites. He just called them a name. See, this idea that Jesus is this super passive, let's all just hug one another and we all love each other mentality that society wants to sell us of who this guy is is not who you see in the Gospels. He calls it straight. He shoots straight. Yes, Jesus does, in fact, love everyone. But he loves them so much that he wants to see them come out of their sinfulness. He wants to see them come out of, whether it be tradition or, or, or some addiction or whatever it is, to move and to walk with God in the manner that he called them to. And so, right, he, he rebukes them here. Secondly, he, he's actually condemning them in what he says. He's addressing their heart and their attitude and their mind, and he's saying, wrong. He's issuing condemnation to them. And thirdly, I think this is the most important and really what becomes such a stark contrast here when we get to our characters. He doesn't answer their question. He says nothing to their question. Now, I think part of that is reflective of their heart. But I think in a bigger sense, throughout Mark's gospel, throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus is responsive to people who demonstrate some concept, some aspect of faith, some pursuit of him. You think of the leper in Mark 1 where he's imploring Jesus to heal him. He responds, the paralytic on the mat in Mark 2, the demoniac in Mark 5, where these guys understand some things about Jesus. They, they get some things. Jesus is responsive to that. But in the same way that he's responsive to people who have some concept of faith, he rejects those who refuse to believe at any level that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. When he went to his hometown, he could do no mighty work among them wasn't that he couldn't do a mighty work. He wasn't going to do a mighty work. The religious leaders here, because their hearts are hard, I'm not going to give you what you're looking for. And so when we see these guys up front, and then as we move now towards verse 24 and following, what you have to understand, as Mark writes this gospel, he's not simply writing some chronological order of the events of Jesus' life. Here's what happened today. Here's what happened today. Here's what happened next. Here's, no, no, he's taking the events of Jesus' life and he's compiling them in a way that he is moving the reader to understand some specific things. And the specific emphasis that Mark is moving the reader towards here this morning is this. It's that Jesus responds to persistent faith. Get that. Understand that. Jesus is going to respond to persistent faith. Now, let me just qualify that here. Because you might hear that and you might go, okay, if I work hard enough, then he'll respond to me. Or if I'm good enough, then he'll give me what I want. Or if I do this long enough, then I can put God into my debt or God owes me. God owes you nothing. Let's be clear on that. Okay. But what we see here in the text and what we see throughout the scriptures is in persistent faith, God responds. Now, in this text, in these two accounts, these guys get what they want this little girl is, is freed from demon possession. This guy who's, who, who's um, uh, deaf and mute is, speaks uh, or, and, and sees and, and um, is able to communicate, right? But sometimes, sometimes the very thing that you and I want is the very last thing that God will choose to give to us. And so God will always respond to persistent faith, but do not, do not, do not make the mistake that just because we're persistent that God will give me the thing 
that I want. And so with this as a frame, with this as an understanding, let's just begin now to press into these two accounts. I'll tell you up front, I'm going to spend the bulk of our time looking at the account of this woman because I, I see, we're going to look at four principles, if you will, or four things in the text with respect to persistent faith. And, and I think we see three of them in both accounts. And then there's one that we see in the second account, not in the first. And we'll focus on that one uh, at the end of our time together. But we'll spend the bulk of our time here looking at this first account because I think we see both of these items in uh, the accounts but four items with respect to persistent faith. Here's the first one. Look at verses 24 through 26. Persistent faith moves us close to Jesus. Persistent faith will move you and I closer to Jesus. Verse 24, Jesus arises and leaves from the place that he was with the religious leaders and the disciples, and he goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, you've got to understand, that's Gentile territory. Okay, so he is now uh, where the Gentiles are, and it may be to get away from the wrath of the religious leaders. It may be that he just wanted to get alone with his disciples. We don't know for sure. We just know that he's not uh, in Jewish territory anymore. Mark does tell us in the second part of verse 24, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Just wanted to get away. Right? Just this, just this, this break. And we've seen this repeatedly in Jesus' ministry. And again, it's not going to happen. Yet he could not be hidden. <clears throat> Word gets out. Guess who's here? And then in verse 25, maybe she wasn't the first. I'm guessing she was one of the first to show up. Immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Right, this woman whose daughter is being tormented. I hear that Jesus is here, and I rush, I rush to get close to him. Now, before we press any further on this, can I just say that I think it's important for us to understand the agony of this woman. The struggle, the difficulty, the turmoil of this woman. Uh, I would contest to you that there's no pain, there is no pain like the pain of a parent watching their child suffer. And so this woman is desperate. She longs to see some type, any type of resolution. And this guy who can work miracles, he's here. He's cast out demons before. So I'm going to him. The truth is persistent faith should be evident in all of our coming to Jesus. And so this woman is moved close to Jesus, even in the midst of this really difficult season. And while Jesus is, make no mistake, Jesus is proactive. He's proactive in coming to us and drawing um, us to himself in salvation and keeping us beyond that. But like any relationship for it to flourish, both parties have to be invested. Jesus won't do for you what you need to do for yourself and you can't do for Jesus what only you can do, right? I mean, he, he expects some things out of us. He only, he can save us. But he calls you and I to live in a particular manner and way. Persistent faith moves us close to Jesus. I think it begs the question of all of us as we think about that truth. So just ask this, self, ask this of yourself right here this morning. In what ways, in what ways am I moving close to Jesus? What are the avenues? What are the ways? What are the means by which I am moving close to Jesus? Now, you might hear that and you might go, I'm not. Or I don't. 
Um, you might hear that and be like, Mike, I, I want to, but I wouldn't know where to start. Now, some of you might be sitting here and being like, well, you know, sometimes, sometimes I do, but if I'm honest, I just, I get distracted. Here's three, three things that you've heard repeatedly, by the way. There's nothing new or revelation, some new revelation. These are very simple things, but, you know, sometimes we need to be reminded. In fact, I think a lot of times we need to be reminded of these things. Here's three simple ways, avenues, means in which we move close to Jesus. Here's the first. It's his word. I mean, like, how hard is that, right? God wrote a book. And he didn't write it for decorative purposes, okay? He didn't write it for you to occasionally, when you feel like, read it. He wrote a book to communicate quite a bit about who you are, who I am, who he is, and how all those things intersect uh, with respect to life. God wrote a book for us to read, for us to pursue him, for us to get after him. And so, right, I mean, the obvious question is, do we read it? Do we open it? Do, do, do we let God speak into our life? Am I moving close to Jesus? Is this, is this something that happens in my life that I open this thing and let God speak into my life? I mean, this is, this is the primary means by which God desires to speak to you and I today. Now, the author of Hebrews told us, he tells us this, he says, long ago and many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So back then, God, God spoke this way, and then he spoke this way. But then the author tells us this, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This very thing that we're reading about right here in Mark, it's the very thing that the author of Hebrews is talking about. It's the very words of Jesus. And in terms of moving close and being persistent in that, it's the word, the word. Maybe the question you have to ask yourself is, does God have the freedom does God have the opportunity to speak into my life? Yeah, God's all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. Okay, he doesn't need the word, but that's the thing that he's given to us. I'll just tell you, sometimes it's so grievous to me. I'll hear people talk about, I'm waiting for God to give me wisdom on this. I'm waiting for God to speak to me on this. I'll just say, what's he teaching you in his word? Well, I haven't really been reading that. Okay, hear me, hear me, hear me when I say this. God will never give you a special thing before you and I will first do the simple thing. God has given us everything we need to know in this book. Why is he going to show up in some special form when I won't do the simple thing, when I won't simply obey him? It's right here. Well, I don't want to do that. Okay, well, I can't help that. That's a hard issue. But I think you're crazy if you think God's going to show up and supersede what he's laid out for us. He made it so simple. And it's so crucial. God's word is so crucial because it becomes the boundary, becomes the measuring stick. It helps us to understand whether or not my thoughts and my feelings and my emotions are realistic or not. You ever had a thought where you're like, I'm not sure if that's from God or from myself. How do I know it's from God? Well, it makes me feel good. Okay, no, 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 no. That bad, okay, bad, that's dangerous. I was thinking the other day, you know, I have this thought, kind of think that maybe God's trying to tell me I should kill my boss. Is there anything in here that might speak to that? <laughs> There's a lot. 
And yet, how often, how often we do that? Well, I think God's telling me this, but we, we won't even open his word. Loved ones, we've got to open the word. We've got to let him speak. That's one mean, one avenue. Here's another one. And I'm telling you, right, so simple. You're like, man, this, go teach this to the five-year-olds. We could and we should and hopefully we are. Here's the second one. It's prayer. It's prayer. Now, God speaks to us through his word. We speak to God through prayer and God also speaks to us through prayer. You might say, well, listen, that woman had it so easy, man, because at that point in time, she could walk right up to Jesus and she could speak to him because he was right there. And you're right, at that moment, she could walk right up to him. But what about the days, weeks, months, and years prior to that when he wasn't in that region? What about, what about the fact that she's a Gentile and there's massive limitations for her in terms of coming into God's presence with respect to the temple? How about the fact that you and I at any point in time, at the drop of a hat, could be in, the, in front of God in the very presence of God like that? See, just because we can't physically get in front of him doesn't mean that you and I can't be right before him constantly. We have it so much easier than they did. Profoundly easier. I, I, can't, I can't begin to tell you how crucial, how crucial prayer is in the life of a believer. Now, I'll be really honest. I'll be really transparent in this moment. And I'll, I'll tell you that um, I have so much so much to learn about prayer. I have so much to grow in that area. Um, I'll be the first to tell you that not only have I not arrived, sometimes I've wondered if I've even begun uh, to leave if you get what I'm saying with respect to that. I think all of us, if we're honest, would say, yeah, there, there's a lot of room for growth in this. Sometimes I look at my five-year-old daughter and I'm like, I think she is better at prayer than I am. She loves it. Every time, every time. You want to pray? Yes! I mean, she gets it. I was reading a book. <clears throat> Tim Keller just a few months ago had a new book on prayer come out. This is the very first line of the book. I don't know about you. I found this to be so incredibly comforting, uh, but also challenging to me. Here's, here's how he opens his book on prayer. In the second half of my adult life, I discovered prayer. Now, you might read that and you might go, that's a prominent pastor and it took him to the second half of his adult life to discover prayer. That's a problem. I read that and I go, thank God I'm not alone. Thank God I'm not alone. Now, I don't want to wait till the second half of my adult life to discover it. I think I've been awakened to it, but I think there's a lot of room for growth with respect to this. Here's what you got to understand. Where there's no prayer, there's no dependence. Where there's no dependence, there's no need for faith. Loved ones, hear me, hear me, hear me when I say this. Prayer is the evidence in my life that I believe the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. If I believe the gospel, if I believe that I'm desperate and needy, that in and of myself I can't save myself, then prayer becomes the only means by which I live because I'm dependent upon Jesus. When, when, when I don't pray, when I don't think I need prayer, what I'm really saying is, God, I don't need you. I got this. And in that, you buy into the lie of self-sufficiency and exile yourself from the reality of the gospel. You and I are incredibly dependent upon Jesus. Prayer is simply the evidence that I really believe that. And I'll tell you that prayer is hard work. It's hard work. 
Because what happens? You start praying, and what's the first thing that happens? Oh, I got to do this, and oh, there's that, and it was so funny yesterday. Wait, oh, I'm praying. Hold on, my bad. Okay, and, and then you start, and about ten seconds later, right there, you go, and you start praying for someone, and it's like, oh, I wonder what they thought about, and you're off on it again. It's hard. It's hard work. I don't know you. At times, I, I find it difficult to understand. Sometimes I wonder whether or not I'm doing it right. And uh, so maybe just on a really practical level, let me just give you a couple things that maybe help with this. First of all, um, maybe you're like, I don't really know how to do it or I struggle with it or, or I'm not sure. Just start doing it. If there's ever a time where practice makes perfect, makes sense, this is it. And practice won't make perfect. It'll just make you better. Okay? Just start doing it. I have full confidence that the Spirit will teach you. It's a big deal. He wants to instruct us on this. Start doing it. Pray on your own. Pray with others. Study. Study about it. Learn about it. Read about it. Let me give you three books, three books that I found incredibly helpful with respect to prayer. In fact, I'm reading a couple of them right now. Uh, one is that Keller book on prayer, and it's literally just called Prayer. It's by a guy named Tim Keller. Um, <clears throat> really good book. And then here are two other books. These other two, they're just, they're so insanely practical, but so helpful. In fact, before the service this morning, Pastor Randy and I were talking about a couple of things, and I just grabbed the book. I said, I got to show you this, because it was one of the things that he was talking about, and um, just read some things out of it to him. But one of them is A Praying Life by Paul Miller, A Praying Life by Paul Miller, and the other is uh, a book called The Heart of Prayer, and I think the subtitle is something like What Jesus Teaches Us About Prayer or something to that effect, and that's by a guy named Jerem Bars, uh, J-E-R-R-A-M, Bars, B-A-R-R-S. If you just Google prayer and bars and Amazon or Google, it'll show up. Grab one of those books. Great, great resources uh, to help with prayer. A part of persistent faith, moving us close to Jesus, right? We're in the word. There's prayer. Here's the final thing that I just wrote down. It's community. It's community that God created us to live with one another, to function with one another, share life with one another, to help one another move closer to Jesus. That's why we talk about discipleship a lot here. Not because we want to feel good about like, oh, look at how many people we have in discipleship. No, we believe what the scriptures teach us that we need to share life with each other. That's why we've got well, there's only four up right now because we're replacing the heating and air conditioning units, but the other one will be back up over there, right? The five pillars of discipleship. That's why it sits in the sanctuary because every week we want our people to see this is what we're about because this is what we believe the scriptures tell us to be about. Sharing life with one another, walking in that way. These things, word, prayer, communities, things that move us closer to Jesus. We look at this text Sometimes, sometimes the very thing that God puts in our life to push us closer is the very thing that you and I keep trying to remove, not understanding that it's God himself who placed it in our life. Because for this woman, it was her child who was demon-possessed. I'm not saying, you know, if your kid has some massive ailment or your spouse is demon-possessed or whatever it is, well, no, that's a good thing. We're just going to leave it. No, it's, it's right to want to be rid of that. But I, I think that in too many of our lives, we're so prone to seeking safety and security and comfort and ease and prosperity that, that we sometimes miss that those aren't the things that God ultimately wants for us. And those aren't even the things that are ultimately best for us. What God wants for us is to be near to him and to be, and to be dependent upon him because that is what is best for us, is to be close and to be near to him. 
And sometimes we have things in our life where we're like, that's bad, or that's uncomfortable, or that's hard. I want to be done with that. And what God wants to say, no, I'm using that to push you right back to me. Let me give you an example of this. Super real, and uh, going on right now, about three, four weeks ago, a good friend of mine back in Flagstaff, 13-year-old son, found out that he has a rare form of lymphoma. They don't know whether or not he's going to live. They don't know what um, limitations may show. They, they have no idea. I mean, it's like flip a coin type thing right now. It's gut-wrenching. It is gut-wrenching to watch this unfold. And yet one of the words that he used to describe this entire thing was, ready for this? Blessing. Yeah, I, I did the same thing. I was like, what? Come again? And he said, Mike... I've never been closer to God. I've never been more dependent upon God. I've never thrown myself at the feet of Jesus like I have in these last few weeks. Now, he'd never wish this on anybody. He's like, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. This is horrendous and horrific. But I think far too often we look at things in our life and we're like, that's bad, I want it out. And we fail to recognize and realize, hey, maybe, just maybe, God put this in my life to push me right back towards him. Because loved ones, the truth is we would rather God crush us. Listen, God crush us and we be close to him than for God to give us everything that we could possibly want and to be far from him. And so when we think about this woman, demon-possessed child, I mean, we, we, we can begin to understand the angst, the struggle, the difficulty, all these things. And yet God is using that to move her close to him. And in our own lives, maybe, maybe we stop asking why and we start asking what. God, what do you want to accomplish in this? What are you moving me towards? How are you pushing or pressing me in this? God, God, what is it that you want to cultivate in me in the midst of this? Persistent faith moves us close and sometimes even in the most horrific of situations. Notice this secondly, verse 27 and 28. Persistent faith is rooted in humility. Persistent faith is rooted in humility. And so she comes, she begs, Jesus, please. And then this answer, which is just, at first glance, is so shocking. Jesus says to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take away the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I mean, you, you read this and you're like, what? That, that can't... Mark missed that up. Like, th th there's a misunderstanding. I, th this is going to mess with my theology of the inerrancy of Jesus didn't say that. Come on. No, he said that. And I think here's what he's saying in this. Okay, there, there's a couple of prominent items that we have to understand. First of all, uh, you know, for the Jews, dogs were, that, that was highly derogatory. A dog was like a, a scavenger. I mean, think of coyotes, but worse. But the Gentiles understood them more like you and I do more domesticated house pet type creatures. In fact, this, the woman understands this, or at least she uh, understands what Jesus is saying with, with respect to that because she says in verse 28, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. I'm guessing most of you don't let coyotes into your kitchen to clean up the crumbs that your children make, okay? Right, and so we understand how she's seeing this. And so it's not derogatory. Jesus isn't taking a shot at Gentiles here. What he's talking about is the order of salvation chronologically. He's saying nothing with respect to his preference or his favorites. In fact, the Bible is very clear about this. 
Genesis 12. Abraham, out of you, I'm gonna, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. Not singular, nation, nations, plural. Man, it's about the world. From the very beginning, it was always about the entirety of mankind. That, that, that was made a little bit more clear in Exodus 19 when God told Moses and the people of Israel, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You as a nation will function as the mouthpiece for me for all other nations so that they will know about me. Isaiah 49 talks about um, being a light unto the Gentiles. God's heart was always, always, always for the whole of humanity. The, the Jews just had this special privilege, the distinction that we got to be the ones to tell people. But failure after failure after failure after failure after failure after failure, and finally God said, okay, you're done. Let's go to the church. Now, let me just press this briefly. If God would remove both the privilege and also the responsibility from Israel, do not think that you and I can be negligent in our responsibility and God will continue to be like, hey, that's okay. We have a responsibility to make known the work and the person of Jesus. And if we fail, God will find someone else to do it. God help us, God help us that we would not be negligent in this. We have to take a responsibility serious. Yes, immense privilege, but it comes with great responsibility. And so God is talking first here about the order of salvation chronologically. Yes, to the, to the Jews first, and this is what Paul tells us in Romans 1. To the Jew first, then to the Gentile, then to the Greek. It's like to the next person or the next group of people. It's never just about one but then notice this second piece, and this is really the humility piece that we see here, is that the woman understands that she's not deserving of God's favor. You notice that? God says, I I'm not going to take the bread from the children and hand it to the dogs. She doesn't protest. She doesn't get offended. She's not like, how dare you? The nerve of you. She just says, yes, Lord. She actually agrees. She's like, I, I understand. I am not worthy of, 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 of your favor, of your goodness, of your kindness to me. In fact, maybe more so than anyone else in the entirety of this gospel or any gospels, this woman understands the fullness of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that she's not deserving, that she, she, she doesn't deserve or God doesn't owe her anything. She gets what Paul teaches us in Ephesians 2. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not of your own works. It's what Paul um, is, is teaching us uh, when he writes to Titus. It's not by works of righteousness which, I, which, which you've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. It's what we see in Romans Five, God demonstrates his love for us in this and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Loved ones, I would suggest to you that this is the appropriate position and attitude before God that we recognize that he owes us nothing and we deserve nothing from him. In fairness, let me back off that a little bit. In fairness, we could say we deserve a one-way ticket to eternity apart from him. If we're going to be honest, that's what we deserve. That's what we've earned but when I understand that God owes me nothing, humility becomes the default response in my life. 
When I understand that God owes me nothing, that, that, that um, I, I don't demand anything. I don't get bent out of shape because God doesn't do what I want him to do. I don't begin to question God's goodness because life isn't perfect or seamless or, or, or suddenly struggle shows up. It's like, God, how dare you? When I recognize that God owes me nothing but wrath, the mere fact that I am not constantly, persistently, and eternally crushed by his wrath is nothing but a means of God's grace to me. And so then in that humility becomes my default response. I can't help but look at someone else and and I see, you can see their sin and you can see their struggle and you can see a failure in them and you don't go, man, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. You go, God, thank you that you rescue me and that you want to rescue them too. And we treat others with humility and grace and kindness and empathy and compassion because we recognize that's how God has treated us. And this woman, this woman has what is arguably one of the harshest, most difficult statements in all of the Gospels said to her, and she embraces it completely because she's coming from a place of humility. That woman, that woman knew her place before God. Do you know your place before God? Do you understand what it is that you deserve? And then in the midst of that, do you recognize what God gives us? That he doesn't give us what we deserve, that he doesn't crush us with his wrath, that he doesn't bury us in our sinfulness, but that instead he puts Jesus on the cross in our place. That he redeems us and regenerates us and gives us the fullness of life. Man, praise God for that. Persistent faith is rooted in humility. Thirdly, look at verses 27 through 30. You have this first part of this exchange we've already looked at, and then Jesus, upon the woman's response, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter, and she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So I think the third thing we see in this uh, account is we see that persistent faith understands the power of God. Persistent faith understands the power of God because see what this woman understood I don't need the whole loaf, God. I need a crumb. I need the tiniest bit of what you would have to offer. I need the smallest portion, the littlest piece that is more than sufficient for me. Because God, your crumb will radically alter my world. Your crumb will heal my daughter. Your crumb will drive away demonic forces. The tiniest bit of what you offer, it'll deal with all of it. Because she recognizes the power of God. She recognizes that God's power is unmatched, unrivaled, unparalleled. There's none like it. There's none like it. Now, think about that for a minute. There's none like it. Do you understand the power of God? Do do you understand what he can do? what he's capable of. I mean, it's limitless. Yet my fear for us is that far too often we lose this sense of God's power. I mean, think about what we've just seen just even in the last few weeks in the book of Mark. I mean, he speaks and the storm stops. He speaks and the demons flee. He speaks and... and, uh, People are healed of sickness and disease. He speaks and death is reversed. What happens when you and I speak? Not those things. 
I was thinking about that this week. I'm like, you know, God speaks, and boom, it happens. I'm like, go clean your room. <laughs> and then like 10 minutes later, oh man, I hope, I hope. When I was growing up, I grew up in Flagstaff and the San Francisco Peaks just are just north of town. We grew up on the north end of town and our front yard faced right um, to the mountains, huge mountains. And I used to always think when I was like a teenager, I always thought about that passage where Jesus said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move a mountain or you can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea and it'll be done for you. And I used to sit out there like, God, I want to have faith. I want to have faith. And it's like, I didn't want to cast it into the sea because I liked the mountain, but it's like, I want to move it, right? Because I want to have the faith to move it. And I would say, the mountain hasn't moved an inch, okay? But I would sit out there and just hope and hope and hope and one day I'm standing there, I'm like trying, trying, like, oh, I believe, I believe in, you know, it's just not moving at all. And then it came to me, and God's saying, you can't move it an inch. I said its name, and it showed up. So that's the reality of all of creation. I spoke, it happened. There was nothing, I said something, now there's something. That's power. 90-year-old woman getting pregnant, a little bit weird, but it's also quite powerful. <laughs> Single guy, obnoxious teenager, out of Canaan, into Egypt, through slavery. Oh, but he's just setting it up so that God's people will be provided for when the famine hits. That's power. And that little family then being a mighty nation 400 plus years later when he's going to lead them back out. Oh, I'm going to take that nation of roughly one to two million people and I'm going to sustain them for 40 years in the desert. You think feeding the 5,000 is a big deal? Do that every day for 40 years. Times who knows how much. And I, th I, think, I think the most miraculous thing about the wilderness wanderings is, uh, I can't remember where Moses tells us, but he talks about how their shoes didn't wear out. Like, did they not have young boys during that time? 40 years? No new shoes? I can't get four months without having to buy new shoes. And yet 40 years. You think about what Job said. He laid the foundation of the earth. He tells the ocean where it can and can't go. He tells the morning when it can and can't start. Sin has no grip on him. Death can't touch him. It can't hold, hold him. Do you understand the power of God? Like, do we get it? See, this woman got it. She got it. I would contend with you that you and I on our best of days at our clearest of moments can't even begin to fathom the fullness of God's power tip of the iceberg if we're lucky. This woman is saying, I got, I need a crumb. I just need a crumb because you're that powerful. Do you understand the power of God in your life? Do you understand that same God who spoke everything into existence, who orchestrated all those miracles, who split the Red Sea and they walked uh, uh, through it on dry ground, the God who's done all these things is the very same God that's at work in your life. And are you holding on to that? Are you clinging to that? Are you walking in that? Persistent faith understands the power of God. Here's the final thing. <clears throat> we look at the second account. And he moves back through um, the region of Tyre to Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they, we don't know who they is, maybe family members, friends, group of them, whatever. They bring him this man who's deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue 
And I think you see here in these first few verses, I think we see some of the very things we've already seen. We see them moving close to Jesus, this persistent faith of we want to see healing, we want to see this guy restored. It moves them close to Jesus. We see this humility in in, in coming before God and and begging him to heal. We see them understanding his power in that if you touch him, if you touch him, he'll be made well. I think we see these same things and then Mark gives us this detailed account of the healing But what we see in the second account that we don't see in the first one is found in verse 36 and 37. Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Here's the final thing, loved ones. Persistent faith proclaims Jesus. Persistent faith proclaims Jesus See, when, when God shows up, when he moves, when he does something, you can't help but not speak about it. He's like, don't say anything. Okay, you're never going to guess what just happened. It's like, you, they can't help it. It just flows out of them. See, the same should, could, and can be true of us if we begin to understand the work of God in our lives. So I, think, I think part of it is, is, is you almost start to look or work backwards here. We, we forget the power of God. We start thinking we're better than we are, that God isn't as great as he is. We lose that sense of humility. We don't move close to Jesus. All of a sudden, I want to start talking about myself. I want to talk about how great I am. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I've done. Look at how great I am. I don't know. It's how great God is. It's look at what he's done. One of the ways you know that you've been gripped by Jesus, one of the ways that faith is persistent in your life is just look at what comes out of your mouth. What do you talk about? What is it that you say? You talk about what he's done or you're talking about what you've done or you're talking about how he's worked or you're talking about how you've worked. Like, What is it that comes out of your mouth? What dominates your conversations? See, here's the reality, what you may or may not understand. You're proclaiming someone or something at all times. Your life is a constant proclamation of someone or something. The question is who? Might be you. Might be your spouse. Might be your kids. Might be your employer. Might be your God. It's something, though. It is something. Persistent faith proclaims Jesus. As we look at these two accounts, as we see these, and certainly in contrast, right, you you see two Gentiles. I mean, no business. These guys have no business with God's favor being bestowed upon them. They have no business engaging Jesus in this particular way. And the two groups before them, the religious leaders and the disciples, they have every right from a human perspective to know everything about God, to get everything right. And yet, what Mark is moving us towards is that Jesus responds to persistent faith. The religious leaders missed it. The disciples missed it. And these two Gentiles nailed it. So the question in front of us is, What kind of faith will I have? 
Will I be persistent in my faith? Will I be persistent in my pursuit of Jesus? Let's pray.